0: Okay, I warned you last week that uh, it was a hard message. And I'm gonna warn you this week that it's a hard message. So last week was suffering, very hard message, no doubt. Today is gonna be just as hard. The good news is next week is Christmas. So come back for that if you want a happy, very uh, good message. This one, hard, just that simple. So chapter one of Habakkuk is this. Habakkuk complains, God, I see all this evil. Why aren't you doing anything? God says, listen, Habakkuk, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. Habakkuk, please tell me I'll believe you. This is what I'm doing. I'm bringing Babylon down. They're going to punch Judah in the mouth. What? I don't believe we're going to do that, God. That's chapter one. And so his second complaint is, God, I can't believe you would use Babylon, I don't like the way you run the universe. That's his second complaint. We're gonna read it and then we're gonna talk a bit. Verse 12, Habakkuk 1. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Yahweh, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. God has just said, I'm bringing Babylon down. They're gonna spank you. And what does Habakkuk say? No way. That's not gonna happen. We're not gonna die. Oh, Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? His complaint is the cure is worse than the illness. Yeah, we're bad, God, but they're worse. So on Wednesday, I explained it like this. Like we don't get this with, with, I think, the law. Imagine you're driving on Interstate 5. How fast are you driving? If you said 65, I think you just broke a command, right? So you're doing 78 because it's Going with the flow of traffic, sir. I was going with the flow of traffic. So you're doing 78, right? You're cruising along. And then someone passes by you doing 90. What do you think in that moment? You speeder. I can't believe that guy's going that fast. How dangerous is that? Man, where's that policeman when you need him, right? And then miracle of miracles, a policeman shows up. You're like, yeah, go get that evildoer. But they pull you over. And when they pull you over, what do you say to them? D- me? Are you, did you see the dude doing 90? Why are you pulling me over? Are you kidding me? And what is the policeman gonna say? Sir, ma'am, how fast were you going? 78? But it wasn't 90. Yeah, what's the speed limit here? 65? Yeah, you're getting a ticket, right? You're also a lawbreaker. So we want to make it like, no, they're much worse than us. God, are you kidding me? And God, that's, what, that's Habakkuk right here. We're, we're not that bad. We're not as bad as them. Are you kidding? The is worse than the illness. God, I don't like the way you run the universe. I don't like you ticketing me for my evil when there are worse people, all right? So verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and food, and his food is rich. You always worship that which makes you rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You're just gonna keep letting them get away with this? God, I don't like the way you run the universe. Very hard subject. So last week was suffering, which is tough. Because the moment you talk about suffering, then you also have inside of that, all these questions about God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's plan, all that stuff comes up. So I believe in what's called active providence. Active providence says essentially this, that God will work in all things but he doesn't necessarily cause or condone all things. Which if you read God's evaluation of Babylon in chapters one and two, even though he's going to use Babylon, he does not condone who they are. He says they're a guilty, wicked, violent people, right? So that's, that's hard, man. You can go round and round on that stuff, no doubt. Could do a month of Sundays on those subjects, hard. Well, today is just as hard. It's not just suffering evil. It's, God, I don't like the way you run the universe. I don't like your plan for dealing with evil. I don't like the way you run the universe. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it's because you read the news or maybe because in your own life, things that have happened to you, things that you, you question, God, why are you allowing this to happen? It's a very tough subject. So chapter two of Habakkuk is kind of the back and forth with Habakkuk and God. And we'll do that on Wednesday. But today I wanna go to another chapter in the Bible that I think better gives us kind of an outline to deal with this subject. It's very similar circumstances to Habakkuk. The people have been evil. God has waited, waited, waited 400 years for them. It's got so evil. They're killing their kids. God says, that's it. I'm done. I'm bringing evil to judge your evil. Habakkuk says, I don't like that. Well, Revelation is very simple or very similar to that. You have Revelation chapter six through 15, God coming to the earth dwellers, the people on earth saying, repent, stop your evil, Repent, stop your evil. Sending out 144,000 missionaries, repent, stop your evil. They refuse, they refuse. So in chapter 16, the hammer falls. And what you see in chapter 16 of Revelation is God judging, and there are three responses to, the, to God's judgment or to the way he runs the universe. So flip, if you would, with me to Revelation 16. Because I think when we feel frustrated with God or when we feel what, what God are you doing? You're going to end up in one of these three categories. And each one of them will have repercussions in your life. Okay, so let's pick it up. Revelation 16, verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the area. So this is kind of a sample Okay, evil, 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 God's impatient, patient, patient. Chapter 16, hammer falls, judgment comes. And they're called the seven bull judgment of God's wrath. And there's going to be three ways that people respond. The first way, look at verse six, it's an angel. Or verse four, excuse me. The third angel poured out his bull onto the rivers and the springs of water, and they became Blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water. So there's some angel that just, his, his job is water. And he says, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Like very, very parallel there, right? It is what they deserve. The first response to God acting decisively here. The first is an angel. And I would say the angel says this, God, you're good. First, he says, you're just, which means you're doing the right thing. You're holy, which means you're of pure motives. Who is and who was, you're eternal, so you're not missing anything. You're not missing some previous information and you're not missing the implications of what you're doing. You're eternal God. You are good. The earth dwellers are getting what they deserve. That's the angel. So here's what I think about angels angels are untainted by sin. So to an angel, the world is black and white there's right and there's wrong. There's no gray kind of, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. No, to them, it's black and white. This is right, and this is wrong. This is holy, and this is unholy. This is pure, this is unpure. So they have for millennia watched earth dwellers hurting people destroying God's good creation. And they have watched as God is patient and long-suffering and merciful and gracious, and they're waiting for God to act. And so when God acts, they say, it's about time. You are good. It is about time, finally. God, you're good. Put yourself in the angel's spot for just a moment. I tend to agree with them. Because the more I read and the more I study about history, I think if God does not judge what has been evil on this earth, he's not good. He wouldn't be a good God. Like if God does not judge the systems that propagate real evil, systems like communist regimes that have propagated real evil and are even doing it to this day, then guess what? He's not a good God. So I met this guy in seminary, his name is Alex. And Alex, uh, I asked him if he was Russian. Turns out he's from the Ukraine because he had this accent. And he said, Matt, never mistake a Ukrainian for Russian. And he, says, he told me like, you can tell by the accent, the Russians are softer on these words, we're harder on these words. And I said, well, why not? He said, because of what the Soviets did to us. I said, what did they do? And he began to tell me about some of the stuff that happened to his country. And, and it's unbelievable. Like the one that I had no idea about was, it's called the Holodomor. Anyone heard of that? Like I had never heard of that before. But it was a famine in 1933 orchestrated by Stalin to try to put down an uprising in the Ukraine. And that winter was an especially brutal winter. winter, And they estimate 12 million Ukrainians died in that one winter from starvation. It was so bad that the Soviets put up all over the place in the Ukraine, these these posters that said this, to eat your children is an act of barbarianism because people are eating their children, right? If God doesn't judge systems that propagate that kind of evil, man, he's not God. Look at apartheid, how it just segregated, a whole class of people to second status. I say, that's gotta be judged. The ethnic cleansings in Kosovo, in Rwanda, if those things aren't judged, what's happening right now in Syria and North Korea, right? What happens in our city with child abuse and molestation? If that doesn't get judged, then I'd say, God is not good. God is not good. And there comes a point where God says no more. It's almost like in World War II, there was a point in that war when the allies said this, The concentration camps are so bad, it doesn't matter. We have to do everything we can to put a stop to that. Whether we eat, the Jews were actually saying, bomb the camps, just put a stop to it. It's like that. If God doesn't judge these systems that are super bad, like the angels have been looking at for years, if he doesn't judge him, he's not good. So the angel's response to God acting decisively, judging evil with evil is, God, you are good. Second response is the earth dwellers. Look at verse nine. And they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Key right there. And they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores And they did not repent of their deeds. You can read about their deeds in chapters six through 15. Horrific and bad. Verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Response number two Angels, God, you're good. This needed to happen. Earth dwellers, God, you're bad. We're cursing you. God, you're bad. You failed us. We don't like the way you run the universe. God, you're bad. Ever felt that way? An event in your life that causes you to feel that way? A son that dies, brother, sister, child that gets hurt in some way, and you feel like this? Just like these guys? And the reason why we say that is because of verse nine. It says, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. See, we say, God, why didn't you do something? You could have slowed that car down by one mile per hour and they'd be alive to this day. You could have stopped my wife, my husband from going to that place. You could have prevented that disease in my child. You've got the power, God. That's the big problem. Why didn't you? And we shake our fist at God. Why'd you let this happen, God? See, I think Satan rarely attacks God's existence for the believers or even God's power to the believer. You know what Satan always wants to attack? God's care. If God really cared for you, Matt, Edgewater, God would not let these things happen to you. And when we let that settle into our soul, our tendency is to do exactly what these people did, curse God. Does that ring a bell? Cursing God and suffering? It should, right? There's a whole book that starts out that way. We talked about it last week, it's called the book of Job. If you don't remember, I'll give you the recap of the book of Job. Chapter one, Satan is in heaven. What's he doing in heaven? I don't know. There's a mystery to evil. There's a mystery to it, I can't figure out. Satan is in heaven, he's chatting with God. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There was no one on earth more righteous than my servant Job, he's number one. He's the Billy Graham, he's whatever, he's number one. Now, if Job knew what was gonna take place, I think Job would have changed that real quick. I'll sin right now, bro. I will change that, I will not be righteous. And what Satan says, it's the wager. If he was afflicted, he would curse you. So what happens to Job? Well, one morning he's sipping his tea and in comes a servant. And that servant says, I was out in the fields and the Sabians attacked us and they stole all of your oxen and all of your donkeys and I'm the only guy that escaped to tell you. they bring you this news. Before that man can stop talking, Another guy comes in. I was out in the fields with the sheep and fire from heaven came down and burned up all your sheep. And I alone escaped to bring you this message. Before he can finish, in comes a third servant. I was with the camels and the Chaldeans attacked us and they destroyed all your servants and they stole your camels. And I alone have escaped to bring you this message. That's called a stock market crash. You got no stock left but at least he had his family. And in runs the fourth servant. I was with your seven sons and your three daughters and a great wind blew and it knocked the house over that they were in and all of your sons and all of your daughters are dead. And there's one person left and it's his wife. And what does his wife say in that moment? Do you maintain your integrity Do you still maintain that God is good? Do you still maintain that God is your friend? Do you still maintain that integrity? Curse God and die. And what was Job's response to that? He got down on his knees and he prayed and he said, God, please take my wife as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the Hebrew, I'm serious. You gotta dig, you'll find it. No, he doesn't. He hasn't cursed God. But that's our natural tendency. Job's wife is the normal way we respond to suffering, to evil, to the way God runs the universe when we don't like it, just like these earth dwellers. It's the normal way. And I think it's very healthy sometimes for believers, especially to read books that are really hard. One of those hard books would be Ellie Wiesel's book called Night super hard book. And in it, he's a concentration camp survivor. He recounts a story that everybody, you'll never forget that story when you read that book. Because it's a day when all the the soldiers march the prisoners out to work on the rail. And for some reason they can't, so they come back early. And there's an execution that was taking place. They normally did not do executions in front of the prisoners because it would rile you up. But this time they didn't have any choice because it was all set up and the prisoners came home early. So they're lining up in there. They're just lining up because they got to do a count off. Make sure no one, has, no one has escaped. So they're counting off, right? And they're lining up, it takes a long time. And there in front of them is the gallows. And there's three people that are gonna be killed that day. Two adults and one 10-year-old child. And this 10-year-old boy had been caught helping a Dutchman smuggle arms. And they'd interrogated him to try to find out information. But this brave little 10-year-old boy wouldn't give anything up wouldn't give any names, wouldn't give any any information up. So he was sentenced to death. And so they put him on the chairs and they had the ropes around their neck and Ellie was standing there. And he said, a man up in front, a couple rows up, screamed as the chairs tipped back. Where is God? And the chairs tipped back and they kept counting off. Half an hour later, they're done counting off. They're starting to march out. And because of the way they marched, they went right by those gallows. As they walked by those gallows, the first two men were heavy enough that instantly their necks snapped and they died. But that 10-year-old boy was still alive, struggling, gurgling, suspended between life and death, between heaven and earth. And again, that man screamed, where is God? And Ellie writes in his book, where is God? He's hanging on those gallows. And from that day forward, he lost his faith. Wouldn't pray, wouldn't praise, wouldn't worship. That's a normal response. When we see things that are hard and difficult and we don't like the way the world is running, we're like earth dwellers. We curse God in our hearts and he dies. But there is a third way. And to me, it's the key. And it's actually supposed to jump out to you on this page, but we've grown so accustomed to the Bible that we don't let the Bible jump out off the page to us anymore. So notice verse seven, notice what it says here. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar talks. Furniture talks. That's unexpected, right? If you came in here and you tried to sit down on your chair and it was like, hey, please don't sit on me. <laughs> you know, Holly, has it been really good to you? Sit on the guy next to me. Please, right? You'd be shocked. If you got in your car and you tried to start your car and your car wouldn't start, and you're like, what's wrong? And the car says, yeah, I'm not starting for you anymore. Well, why not? Because I've watched you. You're driving around looking at every other car. You're going to abandon me pretty soon. And you know what? I just can't take it. So no more. You'd be like, what? No, this is supposed to jump off the page at us. Furniture doesn't talk. So it must be a really, really important message if furniture's going to talk. So the angel says, God, you are good. And the earth dwellers are, God, you are bad. Curse God and die. What does the altar say? God, you're powerful. Yes, Lord God. The almighty. See, there's the question. If God is good and God is powerful, why does he run the universe the way he does? Why is there so much suffering and why there's so much injustice? And why does God run the universe the way he does if he's good and he's powerful? But it's the altar that says it. What's the altar? What happens on altars? Death and sacrifice. The altar is a place of death and sacrifice. The only proof the New Testament gives for the way that God runs the universe and the big questions of suffering and evil and the mystery behind them, the only question or the only answer that God gives for all that is the cross, the altar. Because what it's saying is this, this is how far God goes to deal with the evil and the injustice and the suffering that you're going through. God, let it happen to him so that he could heal you and ultimately so he could heal the earth so we could end up in Revelation 21 and 22, back to a good place where we live with God for eternity, ruling and reigning with him. It's how far the almighty goes. Only Christianity makes God vulnerable. No other religion does. Only Christianity says, we serve a God who let all the bad stuff that we complain about happen to him. Betrayed by a friend. Abandoned by his family. Abandoned by all of his friends. Incorrectly imprisoned. Beaten for no reason. Slaughtered on a cross. Whatever has happened to you, God let happen to him. Only Christianity marries the almighty to the altar. And that's the New Testament's answer to the way God runs the universe. Albert Camus, if you know philosophy, if you took any philosophy class in college or maybe in high school, you'd hear about him. He came up with this thing called absurdism. So there's existentialism, life is meaningless. He went one step further. Now, it's not just meaningless, it's absurd. But he has this fascinating essay on the cross. And he's an agnostic. He just says, the cross changes everything. It is the most important moment in human history. Because God becomes vulnerable. And the divine loses that position of looking down on evil and looking down on bad because he let it all happen to him. So no longer can you blame it all on God because it happened to God and God wasn't beating himself up. That evil has its own mystery to it. That's what he says. God becomes vulnerable. The altar is married to the almighty and he suffers in the way that you and I could never even understand. Have you ever really looked at the cross? The garden before the cross is called the garden of the oil press because Jesus was crushed there. He literally says, This, my soul is exceedingly in despair, even to the point of death. I'm so depressed, I want to die. That's depression. Now, why was Jesus so depressed? Because the suffering Jesus went through was not six hours on a Friday afternoon, it was cosmic and eternal. The Bible says, when we see him in heaven, we'll see him as a lamb having just been slain. That the suffering Jesus went through was cosmic and eternal. And on that night, he knew it in advance. What's the worst part of suffering? Anticipating it, right? If you take your son or daughter to the doctor and they have a cavity and they have to get a shot of Novocaine, what does the doctor do? Does he come in? Like hiding behind his back, right? And your son or daughter's like, hey, what do you have behind your back? What does the doctor do then? He's like, I have a three-inch needle. <laughs> I'm gonna take this three-inch needle and I'm gonna jam it into your cheek. And I'm gonna spray this stuff in there that's like acid. It's gonna eat away at you. And I'm gonna pull it back out and I'm gonna do it over and over just like a... Man, I'm gonna figure this out. We're gonna be here a long time. Sewing machine, man. Thank you. Oh, that was just. A, I'm getting old. I'm officially old right there, because it was right on the tip of my tongue and I couldn't quite. What's that called? When it's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, I won't even try there. Does a the, does a dentist do that? No, what does he do? Oh, not, nothing. Do you have a dog? Yeah. What's your dog's name? Rufus, right there. <laughs> because anticipation is worse. Jesus knew all that was coming. He knew the pain. He knew it all. And he said, I'll take it. You know why? The Bible says for the joy set before him. Because when you put together all the stories in the Bible, when God acts, whether in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk, in Revelation, what you see is this. Here's what God's doing. God is creating a clean space for his people to live in shalom. That there's been an invasion of pimps and drug dealers, if you would. And God has actually given the pimps and drug dealers opportunity to repent every time, 400 years. Here in Revelation chapter six through 15, repent, stop your evil ways, come be on my side. But there comes a point where God says, no more. In the book of Habakkuk, it was, you're murdering children on the arms of Moloch, no more. No more. I'm putting an end to that. I've given you long enough to repent. When it comes to evil, God has two choices, redemption or removal. And he gives people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be redeemed out of evil into his family. But when there comes the time, God says, that's it. I'm making a clean space so my people can live in shalom with me. I'm getting rid of all the drugs and all the pimps and all the traffickers. I'm getting rid of it so that you can live in shalom. That's the book of Revelation. Here it happens, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. In 20, Jesus grabs everything that is evil, everything that is broken, everything that is wrong, and he grabs it and he throws it in this place called the Lake of Fire, so that 21 and 22 can happen. You and I, living in the new Jerusalem, serving alongside our master as kings and queens, free of all the evil of rape and molesting and child abuse and junk. And that's his goal. And what the cross tells us is the extent that Jesus will go to, to make sure that the place, our destination is good. And that's the proof the New Testament gives for the way God runs the universe. Now Friday, I might look terrible. Friday looks horrible. But good news for the believer, Sunday's coming it's coming. The cross is the proof. So ultimately, when we don't like the way God runs the universe, one of two things that's going to happen to you. You're either going to go to the altar of Calvary and bow the knee and trust Jesus, or you'll get angry and you'll be cursed. Those are the two options. And you see them happen over and over in people's lives and in the Bible. And we get to come every Sunday to the altar. And we get to partake in what's been called the elixir of heaven, the thing that heals us. And maybe you came in this morning and you're frustrated at God. You're like the earth dwellers. God, why are you doing this? Habakkuk was frustrated. Was he not? Yeah. But here's the thing about Habakkuk. Habakkuk didn't get frustrated at God Habakkuk brought his frustrations to God and says, God, I don't understand this. God, I can't figure this out. God, help me. And you have this book where this prophet is led by God into this, the end of Habakkuk is so brilliant because he brought his frustrations to God. And so maybe today, you've been shaking your fist at God. Come to the altar, bring them to him. Say, Jesus, I don't understand why this is happening or why this happened, but I do understand the cross. And I do understand that the cross is your definitive moment where you tell me how much you love me, that you allowed every bad thing ever to happen to you, to absorb it into yourself, to create for me a great place that I'm headed to. And now no matter what my life looks like today, I trust you. That's what the cross does. That's when you can say, like the angel, God, you're good because of the altar. And so, Father, this day, may we learn from our brother Habakkuk who was frustrated, but he did the right thing with his angst and his frustration. He brought it to you. And you revealed to him that the just shall walk by faith, shall live by faith. You revealed to him such glorious truths that it transformed his life. I pray for any in here today that as can so easily happen, the wife of Job, the earth dwellers, in Revelation, in my own heart, Lord, when I went through death, that we can take our anger and be angry at you. And you would say to us, I'm angry at this stuff. I hate cancer. I hate drugs. I hate child abuse. I hate it too. Join me. Get angry at the right thing. So may we eat. And may we drink of healing, healing from bitterness, healing from heartache. May we eat and drink of your life today. And may we join with you being an outpost of heaven, salt and light. Here in Grant's Pass, pushing back against darkness and evil, just like you did. May we eat and drink of that this day, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.